Our second reading this morning uh, is from Numbers chapter 25. I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. Hear the word of God. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The Israelite man who was killed with the Midianite woman was named Zimri, son of Salu. He was the leader of a family in the tribe of Simeon. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby. She was the daughter of Zer. Zer was the head of a family and the leader of, an, of a Midianite tribe. The Lord said to Moses, The Midianites are your enemies. You must kill them. They have already made you their enemies. They tricked you at Peor. They tricked you with the woman named Cosby. She was the daughter of a Midianite leader, but she was killed. When the sickness came to the Israelites, that sickness was caused because the people were tricked into worshiping the false god Baal at Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our reading this morning from Numbers chapter 25 is a reading from the Word of God. This is a scripture that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, but as a piece of history writing, it is a little bit confusing and would benefit from the help of an editor. I know that sounds a little strange. I hope it doesn't sound heretical to you this morning. The Israelites are in Moab, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River across from Jericho. When they finally do enter the promised land, they will travel from Moab across the Jordan River and make their first stop at Jericho. You all remember the story about the walls of Jericho. And so the older generation is gone at this point except for Moses and Joshua and Caleb. The Israelites are out of the Sinai wilderness where they had been wandering for 40 years. They are now in the civilized part of the world with wells and rivers and plenty of good food to eat. Last week we read three chapters from the book of Numbers that tell the story of Balaam, who is a freelance religious man whom King Balak tried to hire to put a curse on the Israelites. Balaam tries three times to curse the Israelites, but each time it backfires, and instead he blesses them. So King Balak sends him packing, and he doesn't get paid. The Israelites are living in Moab. 
they don't, we don't know exactly how long they were there. A million people doesn't move very quickly from place to place. But they are there in Moab long enough for some of them to get mixed up with some bad stuff. Some things that are clearly prohibited in the law of Moses that they received at Mount Sinai. The story begins this way. When the Israelites were camped near Acacia, the men committed sexual sins with Moabite women. The Moabite women invited the men to come and join in their sacrifices to their false gods. So the Israelites joined in worshiping these false gods. They ate the sacrifices and worshiped these gods. Then the Israelites began worshiping the false god Baal of Peor. And the Lord became very angry with them. That was the beginning of our reading. So let's begin with the sexual sins. God's law places boundaries around marriage and sexual practice. Sex is to take place within marriage and between a man and a woman. Every other sexual practice is forbidden in the word of God. In this case, the sexual sin the Israelite men committed with the Moabite women uh, was a peculiar kind of sin. It isn't as though they were running off with Moabite women uh, you know, to fornicate behind a haystack. And it wasn't the case of uh, married Israelite men having a secret rendezvous with married Moabite women at a no-tell motel. What was going on in this story was they were having sex with women who worked at the temple. Sometimes these are called temple prostitutes. But that's not exactly right either because the temple wasn't a brothel. Probably we should call these women priestesses because the worship of Baal combined religious worship with sexual activity. You would go to the temple, you would have sex with the priestess, and then you would offer a sacrifice to the God. And there's a bonus. You also got to eat a big juicy steak while you were there. Because part of the flesh of the animal that was sacrificed was then eaten at the temple. Now, if you were Satan and you were trying to design a religion to get men to go to your false church, what better way? than by offering them juicy women and juicy steaks. And that's where the trouble starts. I'm not sure what religious practice looked like in Egypt, but this generation of Israelites grew up in the Sinai Desert, and they arrived in this place with cities and vineyards and beautiful temples offering temptations that were sure to get the attention of the Israelite men. Of course, in going for it, they not only commit sexual sins, they also offer worship to a false god. The word that is used in our passage for the sexual sin, the King James Version uses the old-fashioned word harlotry, that same word is used in the Bible for both sexual promiscuity and religious promiscuity. God intends for our sex life and our religious life to be enjoyed within clearly defined boundaries. And here in Moab, 
Satan uses sexual temptation to lead the Israelite men into religious promiscuity, or what we might call idolatry. When we talked about this last week, we called it syncretism, which is the modern term for mixing a little of this religion with a little of that religion to create a blend that appeals to our self-interest. And God's response is predictable. As we read in verse 3, And the Lord became very angry with them. It is at this point in the story that the historian in me wants to do a little editing to make the sequence of events a little bit clearer. As this sexual and religious promiscuity is going on, and we don't know how long this was happening, God sends a plague into the Israelite camp. We see that in verses 8 and 9 where we read, at that time there was a great sickness among the Israelites. A total of 24,000 people died from that sickness. To get a sense of the scale of this epidemic, we can compare it with COVID. When all was said and done, for people under the age of 65, and all of the Israelites at this time, except for Moses, would be under the age of 65, the death rate from COVID was 300 per 100,000 or three-tenths of one percent. We don't know exactly how many Israelites were there in Moab, but let's say that it was two million and four hundred thousand. In that case, the death rate would have been one thousand per one hundred thousand, or one percent, nearly three times as deadly as COVID. Not the end of the world, but certainly something that would get your attention. Up to this time, the deadliest plague that God had ever sent against the... It was the deadliest plague that God had ever sent against the Israelites. And it would not be surpassed until many years later when King David took a census that God did not permit. So the Israelite men are whoring around with the Moabite women and the Moabite God. And some disease begins to rage in the camp. Without a doubt, it is the men who have caused this problem. And in response to this crisis, God speaks to Moses, and he says to Moses, get all the leaders of these people, kill them so that all the people can see, and lay their bodies before the Lord, then the Lord will not show his anger against the Israelites. A couple of things I want us to notice here. The first thing to notice is that God singles out the leaders in the community. The leaders are responsible if the people go astray. It is their job to lead those people, to keep them out of trouble. Too often we only think of the power that leaders have, and we ignore the special responsibilities that they bear. You remember Jesus speaking to his disciples said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a giant millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's the kind of verse that will make you think twice about being a Sunday school teacher. If one of those children under your care is led astray by you in a position of leadership, it would be better if you were drowned 
in the ocean. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the elders at Ephesus, says, Be careful for all the people that God has given you. The Holy Spirit gave you the work of caring for this flock. You must be shepherds to the church of God, the people he bought with his own blood. Has anyone ever given you something that is extremely valuable and asked you to take care of it for a while? Well, what about something that is so valuable that it costs the blood of Jesus himself? That's how much the people in our church are worth to God. And those who shepherd the people in our church are responsible to God for keeping them safe. The author of Hebrews has a word to the Christians uh, about obeying their leaders, but it makes us realize the gravity of the leadership job. We read, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. So who are they going to give an account to? Well, they're going to give an account to Almighty God. One day soon, I will stand before Almighty God, and I'm going to have to give an account of my life. But I'm also going to have to give an account of how I took care of you. Did I lead you in paths of righteousness? Did I lead you astray? It's a terrifying thought. So Moses instructs all of his lieutenants, the 70 judges who work under him, and he says to them, So Moses said to the Israelite judges, Each of you must find the men in your tribe who have led the people to worship the false god Baal of Peor. Then you must kill these men. The first thing to notice is that God singles out the leaders. The second thing to notice is that God singles out the leaders so that he can show mercy to the people who have been led astray. We read in verse 4 God's instructions to Moses to kill the leaders. And, and uh, it says that this is to happen so that the Lord will not show his anger to all of the Israelites. A lot of people were guilty of the sexual and religious sins that were going on, but God reserves the judgment for those who are in authority. And then the third thing to notice is is that God wants the ordinary people to be aware of the gravity of their sin by exposing the dead bodies of their executed leaders. We read in verse 4, Kill them so that all the people can see, lay their bodies before the Lord. Now it was one thing for Herod to behead John the baptizer in a prison cell, and it was quite another thing for Pilate to hang Jesus on a tree exposed to the whole world while he dies. Being exposed is an added insult to the execution. And being exposed allowed the other people who were witnessing this to get the message, don't ever do this kind of thing. Well, if that part of the story isn't dramatic enough, the story then reaches an even higher pitch when a man named Zimri 
comes waltzing into the Israelite camp with a Midianite woman named Cosby, and they go to her tent in the broad daylight. Moses and all of the leaders who were gathered at the tabernacle, they see it, and Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, grabs his spear, and he enters the tent where the tryst is happening, and he kills both of these people with a single plunge of his weapon. Verse 8 tells us Phineas pushed the spear through both of their bodies. Now you don't have to be a detective to imagine what position the two of them were in when the spear came through them. And then the scripture tells us when Phineas killed these two people, the sickness stopped. The trouble began when the Israelite men fell into sexual promiscuity and into religious promiscuity. Harlotry is the old-fashioned word that is used for both of those sins. Our sexual relations and our religious worship are both supposed to be bounded. They are both supposed to be exclusive relationships. We do not share our sex life with anyone, but only with the person that we're married to. We do not share our religious life with any God except the one true God who made us and saved us. Sexual and religious promiscuity are not for the people of God. Open sexual relationships and religious pluralism are strictly forbidden in the Word of God. In the Bible, the antonym, the opposite word for harlotry is jealousy. Now, we don't like the word jealousy because we associate it with irrational paranoia that our spouse is cheating on us. But in the Bible, the word is used in a positive way. To indicate a wholehearted, single-minded love and devotion. Sometimes the word is translated as zealous. Zealous and jealous are twin words in the scripture. And they both point to a complete and total devotion without any side glances at things that might tempt us. The Bible describes God as a jealous God. He has a wholehearted and a single-minded devotion to his people, and he asks from them the same in return. God has a jealous love for us, and he wants us to have a zealous love for him. On the other side of the coin, the twin word for harlotry is idolatry. The issue with idolatry, as we talked about last week, is not that we give up God and convert to another religion. That's not idolatry. We call that apostasy. Idolatry is wanting Almighty God, but then having some other little gods on the side because we think the one true God can't satisfy all of our needs. Harlotry and idolatry are the opposites of being zealous and being jealous. Almighty God is the source of life and truth and goodness and beauty. Outside of Almighty God, there is nothing. In Him we find everything that we need. 
We run into trouble when we look for what we need outside of God or beside God. Pagan religions, which worship things in the creation, things like you know the sun or a river or Mother Earth, pagan religions are partly right. They recognize the goodness of creation, but they are deeply wrong because they look at the created thing rather than at the creator. Pagan religion is like the crazy person who falls in love with the love letters rather than falling in love with the person who sent those love letters. I think all of us are vulnerable to that kind of mistake. Even those of us who are religious, even those of us who are in church every Sunday. What if I were to fall in love with the beautiful hymns? Or the lovely sanctuary? Or the reverent communion service? What if I am smitten by the eloquence of the preacher or the beauty of the voices who lead our singing? We gather in this place every week to worship God and every week our staff and our volunteers work very hard to make the experience that we have here in this sanctuary uplifting and encouraging. But what if we fall in love with the experience and lose sight of what all of those experiences are supposed to be pointing us to? The music and the words and the sacraments are signs. They are signs that point to something else. And if we fixate on the sign, we miss what the sign is pointing to. Imagine if you take your summer vacation and you drive out west to the Grand Canyon. You've heard so much about it. You want to see its beauty and its grandeur and you pull into the parking lot and you see the sign. It's a beautiful sign carved in wood. Grand Canyon this way. And you stop and you admire the sign and you take pictures of the sign and you take a couple of selfies of yourself of the sign. So you can post them on Facebook, and then you get back in your car and drive away. If we're doing it right, we come here on Sunday morning not to hear me preach, not to listen to our talented musicians, not to taste the grape juice and the matzah cracker and the Lord's Supper. If we're doing it right, we come here on Sunday morning to see Jesus. You know, of course, I'm preaching to myself. But maybe you too have come to church and you've seen and you've noticed everything and everyone, but you've missed the main attraction. Maybe what you've seen and pleased and heard has pleased you because it's beautiful, or maybe it's annoyed you because it wasn't what you were expecting. But whatever our experiences have been this morning, with all the signs that are around us, let us not go home until we've seen Jesus. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Almighty God, we honor you and we bless your name this day. And we thank you for this story we read in the book of Numbers, this report about what happened so long ago. Lord, we know that you are a jealous God. And we know that you want us to love you with a zeal that matches your jealousy. Lord, help us be faithful to you. Help us trust in you alone. Help us find our satisfaction in you. Lord, I pray that you would give us a larger and a deeper and a richer vision of who you are. I pray that we would see you in all of the aspects of our lives. Forgive us, Lord, when we have tried to live some part of our life outside of a relationship with you. Thank you for bringing us here this Sunday morning, but Lord, as we go out from here this day, may we go back into our lives letting our vision of you infect everything that we do all week. Lord, in you we live and move and have our very being. May we be aware of that. Father God, we thank you for the body of Christ that is gathered here this morning. You have brought them from different places and from different circumstances this week. Every one of the children who are in this room that you have bought with your own shed blood, Lord, they're all yours. We are all one in the body of Christ. Thank you for gathering us here. Thank you for the vision of the kingdom of God that we see here in this sanctuary. Lord, as we gather around your table this morning, I pray that we would see the body of Christ gathered around that table, that we would see the church filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would see the church as the embodiment of your kingdom here on earth. And I pray that as we gather at this feast that we might love one another as you've loved us. Forgive us of any hardness of heart that we have against any of the brothers or sisters. Help us to be forgiven of our guilt before we come to the table this morning. Lord, we don't come to this table in our own righteousness or in our own power. We come because you have invited us. By faith in Jesus Christ, we have received the righteousness of Christ. Strengthen our faith this morning. May we rely more on your righteousness and less on our own goodness. 
Let us not be deceived by the condition of our hearts. But let us also be confident that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are no longer slaves. We are no longer enemies of God. But we are children of the Most High. May that be a living reality for us this morning. Lord, we pray for the church around the world. We pray particularly for those who suffer because of their faith this morning. We pray that you would protect them, that you would strengthen them. But Lord, we pray that our witness in all circumstances, even in Huntington Valley, we pray that our witness might be true and unambiguous. Lord, I pray that we might be seen in our community as Christians, that people might know us as members of the body of Christ. We pray for our members who are not able to be here this morning, who are separated from us by distance or by sickness. We pray that the fellowship of the Spirit would be uh, strong and true with them this morning. Bless us now, Lord, as we come to this table, prepare our hearts to meet you in this sacrament. All of these favors we ask in the name of Jesus who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.